Take your little uh, book there if you have it and turn uh, with me to page 18, page number 18. I want to kind of give you a, a, a premise here or a definition here, and then we'll jump back into this. But um, if, I, if I could take all the definitions of revival, and there certainly are hundreds, thousands probably, and funnel them all down into one phrase, if I could reduce that, that, that concept down to its most bare uh, essential and minimum, I would, th- I would say revival basically defined is obedience. A revived life is an obedient life. Continuous revival is a believer who lives in continuous obedience. Now, now that being the case, we need to define obedience. If you have kids in base camp or Happy Art City, uh, we already talked to them about this, and so we should at least be up to speed with where our children are. What does it mean to obey? We want to suggest there are three parts to obedience. The first part of obedience is doing exactly what God says. Nothing more, nothing less. Our tendency is to either run ahead of God or lag behind. Sometimes we do more than God says. Sometimes in our own energy and effort, we're just trying to help God out a little bit. Remember Nadab and Abihu? They were sons of Aaron. And and God had told the priest specifically how they were to set up the, the sacrifice. In this particular case, he told them, here's how you do this, but put no fire under it, he said. On, on this particular case, he was going to show his power, his might, and send the fire from heaven. Well, Nadab and Abihu, they got it all ready, just like they were told. And then it says they went and got some strange fire and lit the thing on fire. Now, now they were just trying to help God out. Was God pleased with their help, yes or No. No, he came down, destroyed the whole thing, including them. Why? They did more than God said. And sometimes, even with good motives, we run ahead of God and do more than God says. That's not obedience. On the flip side, sometimes we do less than God says. God told King Saul, go destroy all the Amalekites. Now, that's a pretty simple instruction. All means all, that's all all means. Go destroy them all. Saul destroyed them all except for one. Just kept the king alive. That's close to obedience. But see, you don't measure obedience in percentage points. You can't say, I was 90% obedient. Partial obedience is disobedience. It it, it was the custom to keep the king alive, kind of like a, a trophy. You could drag him through the streets in your celebration, your victory parade. And Saul got caught up in pride. And because of his pride, he didn't fully obey what God said. As a result, he lost his kingdom, his family, and his life. Obedience is doing exactly what God says. Secondly, it's doing it when he says to do it. And if there's no other direction, it means now. That's why we've set aside this room called the prayer room. Outside these doors, across the hall, it's just a, a, a normal room. It's got a sciences prayer room. It's just a place for you to go anytime God speaks to you, before a service, during a service, after a service. What we do is we sit there and say, let me chew on it a while. You know, it's interesting. You read through the New Testament, and when Jesus gave direction to disciples, you read the words, and immediately they went straightway. King James says, forthwith, whatever that means. They, they did right away what Jesus said. They didn't say, let me chew on it, let me think about it. And, and obedience is doing what God says when he says to do it. 
Here's the third thing. Not only exactly, not only when, but thirdly, it's doing it with the right heart attitude. Sometimes we obey, but we gripe and complain the whole way down there. We, we get the, the poochy lip disease. You know what I'm talking about? It's like this little girl, right? You know, we're going to do it, but we don't like it, right? You've seen your kids like that, but we do that in our own attitudes. Now, let me illustrate it. We'll take the name of the boys, and it's George. And one day, his dad comes home and says, George, I want you to take the trash out, put it in the garbage can behind the garage right now. Well, well, George is in a hurry, so he goes, he grabs the trash, walks out the back door, and throws the trash over the fence in the neighbor's yard. Did George, take, did George obey, yes or no? Yes or no? He took out the trash. But dad said to put it in the trash can, and he put it in the neighbor's yard. That's not obedience. The next night, his dad comes home says, George, take the trash out, put it in the garbage can, behind the garage right now. Man, he's watching his, you know, favorite TV program, you know, Phineas and Ferb or whatever. And, and finally, about five hours later, he drags himself out in the kitchen. The bottom falls out of the garbage. So got clean. finally, about one o'clock at night, he's taking the trash out. Did George obey? Yes or no? Yes or no? No, dad said now. He did it five hours later. That's not obedience. The next night, his dad comes home and says, George, take the trash out, put the garbage can, find the garage right now. They have a lot of trash at George's house. And so, so George grabs the rag, walks out the back door, slams the door. Man, my old man always made me take out the trash. What do you think? I'm a professional garbage man. I'd like to throw him in the garbage. George obey, yes or no? Took out the trash, but his attitude wasn't right. Now, now how many of you as parents or grandparents will be thrilled if every time you told your child, your grandchild to do something, they did exactly what you said right away with a good attitude? How many of you would like that as a parent? Grandpa, let me see your hand. Yeah. Two kids, two hands. That'd be great. It'd be wonderful. Do you think tonight, if, if our father, if God were to stand here tonight, and we could say to him, Father, would it please you if we would do exactly what you say, when you say, with the right attitude? You think he would say yes? Sure he would. See, here's the deal about kids. It's great having a lot of kids. Here's the problem. Kids are like mirrors. They reflect back your attitude. So the more kids you have, the more mirrors you have running around reflecting your attitude. And, and we want our children to obey, but the fact is that many times they're just a reflection of, of our own life, our own obedience. Now, that definition of obedience is going to come into play later on in the message. So kind of tuck that away. Let's all stand for a moment, and I want you to sing together with me uh, the song we sang earlier. We're going to sing it a cappella, Amazing Grace. You all know this song. You sing it with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Now, some of us have sung that a thousand times and never taken the time to think about what we were really singing. I want you to let you do something tonight in church. I, you do it anyway. I'm going to let you talk in church, okay? Uh, we do it anyway. So I, I want you to turn to somebody in just a moment, and I want you to ask two people two questions. Now, don't t t I tell you but here's the first question. In a moment, I want you to turn to someone. I want you to say to them, in your own words, what is grace? You can't use the phrase unmerited favor, though it is. But in your own words, 
what is grace? Now, if you don't know what grace is and someone asks you, just say to them, I don't know. I came to church to learn those things. That'd be fine. But, but if you know what grace is, they give you an answer. Here's a second question. How have you used God's grace in the last two weeks? Number one, what is grace? Number two, how have you used God's grace in the last two weeks? Turn to two people, ask them those two questions, then you can sit down. All right, you can be seated. So, how many of you know more about grace now than you did two minutes ago? Let me see your hand. Okay, see, somebody taught you something. That's great, we're good teachers. What is the grace of God? Take your Bible, turn with me if you would to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Make sure it's 2 Corinthians. It's very important, uh, you know, when, when the preacher says open to, you know, first this or third John or whatever, you get the right numeral in front of it. I heard about a couple that was uh, getting married and they wanted something real romantic on their wedding cake. So they're going to have 1 John 4, 8 that says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Well, somehow in the delivery, the first got knocked off and all the baker got was John 4, 8. So their wedding cake said, you've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Not good for a wedding cake. All right. So anyway, we're, we're, we're at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to look at one verse, verse number 8. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. It says this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, now look at that verse again and see how many times the word all, always, and some all-inclusive word is used in that verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Seven times in one verse, he uses some all-inclusive word to define the grace of God. And here's what I found about, about grace. Believers understand that grace is necessary for salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. So we understand that at some point in the past, God showed us his grace and saved us. And we understand that at some point in the future, God in his grace and mercy is going to come and take us out of this world and take us to heaven and have a new life for us. And we understand those two ends. But here's what I believe we have failed to understand. That grace is not just something that's the past, not just something that's in the future. Grace is all, all things, all sufficiency in everything. So, so here's the, the definition we want to use about grace tonight. Grace is the dynamic quality of the life of God within me that gives me two things. The desire and the power to live in harmony with God and his word. So, so we understand that grace was necessary for salvation, but we don't understand that grace is necessary for living. Paul said this, I am what I am by the grace of God. Not because I do more or know more, as we talked about last night. Grace makes us what we ought to be in Jesus. The, the, the life of Christ, the abundant life of Christ, is the result of a work of grace. And, and this definition is just a paraphrase of Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13 says, It's God who works in you, both to will, there's desire, and to do, there's power, of his good pleasure. So grace is, is the quality of God in us that gives us desire and power to live in harmony with God and his word. 
Now, now you say, well, what do I need the grace of God for? Well, you need the grace of God to get up in the morning. You need the, you know, the alarm clock goes off. You want to hit that reality delayer. You know, float, that, that snooze button. Float off into Never Never Land for another 15 minutes. You need the grace of God to get up. You need the grace of God to, 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 to brush your teeth, to walk through your day, to, to love people that you disagree with. To, to get along with, with the boss that you have, to, to, or, or you know, to lose your job, or you know, maybe a worst case scenario is to keep the job you have with the boss that you have. You know what I'm talking about? You, you talk to people about their bosses, I don't understand this. It seems like all the geniuses of the world are working for all the idiots. You ever notice that? You hear people talk about their boss and it's just crazy. Why? Well, you need the grace of God at your job. You need the grace of God. If, if you, if you as, a, as a student, you know, you're sitting in the classroom and, and the teacher calls on you and someone wakes you up because you're asleep, you need the grace of God. You, you need the grace of God for aches and pains or, or terminal illness. Or, you, need, you need the grace of God to, when you fail. You need the grace of God in big things, little things. I go on and on. Or just say you need the grace of God for everything. I, I shared that. I was in Georgia, in Waycross, Georgia, and, uh, and, and a girl came to me the next day, and she said, last night you told us we needed God's grace for everything. And I, I said to myself, I don't need God for everything. I can brush my teeth without God. She said, this morning I got up to brush my teeth, and my sister had gone in there first, and she got toothpaste all over the handle. I touched it, got it on my hands, on my clothes. I started yelling at her, racing through the house. God said, see there, you came and brush your teeth without me. He said, you're right. We, we need the grace of God for everything. And, and I think what happens is we have limited the scope of grace. And th this is a, a quick theology lesson. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. You understand that? Justification, just as if I'd never sinned. We understand the justifying, saving grace of God. We understand the glorifying grace of God, that someday he's going to come to receive us to himself. In between is the sanctifying grace of God. And this is where I think most believers have failed to use, failed to appropriate, failed to take advantage of the grace that God made available. The scope of grace is not just past tense, not just future tense, it's present tense. God's grace is for today. You need God's grace now. You'll need it tomorrow. You'll need it the next day. You need the grace of God for everything. Let me summarize it in two categories. I want to suggest you need the grace of God First of all, to have a right response to the conviction of sin. And secondly, a right response to the circumstances of life. The conviction of sin and the circumstances of life. Now, I, I told you last night, I was going to share with you how you could go to bed, nothing between you and God. I, I'm going to get to that down the road. I, I, I kind of changed my thinking here. But I want you to understand grace first. Grace is what you need. You, we talked last night about getting squeezed. And when you get squeezed, sometimes it's not Jesus that comes out. God has given us his grace as the vehicle through which grace gives people a view of Christ in our life. But if we don't appropriate God's grace, which many of us don't do, then they're not going to see Christ. They're going to see our fleshly carnal response. So we need the grace of God to respond to circumstances that are difficult, squeezing circumstances. And then when God convicts us of sin, when God says, as Jimmy talked about love, and we say, I am not patient, I am not kind, what am I going to do with that? 
I need to understand the grace of God as it applies to the things God convicts me of, my stubbornness and my pride, my immorality, whatever it is that God convicts you of, you need to apply the grace of God. And the fact is, all we do many times as believers is say, oh, I'm so grateful for God's grace way back there. That's why I like that song, His grace still amazes me. It's not just about back there, it's about right here, it's about today, it's about present grace that we're not appropriating into our life. We wanna look at that tonight. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 gives the example of an individual who failed to use, failed to appropriate, failed to take advantage of the grace that God made available to him. Hebrews chapter 12. In, in, in verse 12, it says that we're to lift up the hands and hang down. Make straight paths for your feet. Some great admonitions there in, 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 the, in those verses. But look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, down about verse 15. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Don't fail to use, fail to take advantage, fall short of appropriating the grace God has made available. What happens is when you resist God's grace, I, I think some of us may not do it on purpose, but we resist God's grace by not using God's grace, it chokes off the life of Christ in us. And what happens here in this verse, that when you fail to use the grace of God, fail to appropriate it, what happens is a root of bitterness springs up. You're in a circumstance, it doesn't go your way, and you fail to apply grace to that circumstance, someone wrongs you, someone hurts you, and rather than responding in grace, we get bitter. We get upset because that person wronged us, they said something, they did something to us. And, and we're not experiencing the fullness of Christ in our life because we're bitter. I, I, I told the, the, the deacon Sunday, I, I believe one of the main issues in the church today is bitterness. We've been hurt by a family member, hurt by a former pastor, a former church, former boss, someone, and we've not dealt with it God's way. We've not applied grace in the midst of that hurt. As a result of that, we've gotten bitter. And notice what happened in this passage, verse 16, that there'd be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. In Esau's life, that bitterness resulted in moral impurity. I, I think bitterness lays you open to moral impurity. I, I believe the reason moral impurity is so rampant in our churches today is because people are bitter. Young people are bitter because their parents have disciplined them in anger. They've broken their spirit, not their will. Husbands and wives are bitter because they've been hurt or embarrassed by their husband or their wife. We let personal hurt grow into bitterness. So Satan says here, have this moral impurity. You deserve a little bit of satisfaction. You deserve a little bit of freedom. And, 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 and so we buy into that because we've not dealt with those circumstances, those hurtful scenarios in grace. And so we, and, and so we take that temporary solution. Now, I'm not talking about the world. It's true there. But I'm talking about the church. It, it's been true of every church I've ever been in. We talk about the importance of purity, but we're not. Very few teenagers in our culture graduate as virgins from high school. Very few women go through their adult life without living for some period in some fantasy with someone other than their husband. Very few men are faithful to their wife in every way. Why is that? I believe it's because we've come to circumstances and rather than respond in the grace of God, we've gotten bitter and Satan says, here, this is your solution. 
So we live in a dream world, or we live in a relationship, or we live someplace else rather than dealing with the circumstance in the grace of God. So, so, so how do we change that? Let me, let me explain it this way, just to clarify grace. I, I think every time God gives us a truth in Scripture, Satan's goal is to take that truth and push it to one extreme or another. Heresy is truth pushed to extremes. So, so if there's a pendulum of grace that would be swinging, one swing of that pendulum, one wrong swing, is what we'll just call cheap grace. That would be a group of people who use, or I should say abuse grace, as a license to disobey. Their, their attitude is, we're in the age of grace, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, God did away with the law, in the age of grace, and they kind of use grace like a, a smokescreen to hide behind so they can defend their fleshly lifestyle. And anytime somebody holds up a standard, says, you know, maybe you shouldn't be involved in that, shouldn't you know, look at that or do that, whatever. They say, oh, you're just being legalistic. Now, 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 before you call someone a legalist, you need to define your terms. Legalism is adding works to salvation. So when you call someone a legalist, you're pronouncing them lost. So be careful about just throwing that term around. But, but they love to throw that term around because they can hide their lifestyle behind this rocket of legalism they're throwing at everybody. And they love to say, you know, Jesus did away with the law. That's not what the Bible says, though. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? Yes or no? Yes or no? Okay, I want to make sure, okay? Until heaven and earth pass away, he's not one jot or tittle will depart from this book. Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to destroy the law, he said. I came to fulfill the law. And until heaven and earth pass away, it's not going to depart. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on and he blows apart the Pharisees' doctrine of sin. He says in verse 21, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. In verse 27, he says, you've heard it said of all time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I send you, if you look on a woman in a lustful way, you've, you've already committed adultery. And he goes on in Matthew 5, and he says, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say. And, and what he's saying is, is the issue is not your action. God looks at our heart. We talked about that last night. And you can clean up the outside, but God looks on the inside. And, and, and then the face says, Steve, wait a minute. I felt bad when I came in, now I feel worse. You're saying I have to keep the law and I have to keep the intent behind the law? Yeah, but, but here's the good news. It is only the grace of God that empowers us to do anything. And, and so, so don't sit there and say, well, I, I, I can do whatever I want. That's why there's so much sin in the church. Now, the other swing of this pendulum would be the, the, the no grace crowd. And this would be a group of people who talk about grace, preach about grace, sing about grace, but in the ultimate end, they are in the true sense of the term legalistic. They believe you're saved by the grace of God and getting baptized, by the grace of God and going to church or saying your rosary or, or doing whatever. They've got a list of, you know, don't do these things. I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with the girls who do, that kind of thing. You know, they've got a whole list, and if you do these things, then you're a Christian. That is not Christianity, that is not grace. That's legalism. But in the middle of this pendulum is God's grace. And, and as simply as I can define this sanctifying grace we're talking about, I'm gonna say it's this, it is just the desire and power to obey. That's what God's grace is. 
but he wants us to appropriate. Did you ever lose your, your desire to obey God? I have. Ever lose your desire to, to read the Bible? I have. Ever lose your desire to pray? I have. Ever lose your desire to, to meet the needs of your wife? I have. That happens every time Debbie wants to go to the mall. You know, I mean, I, I want to be a good husband. I want to, but you know, it, it wouldn't bother me if every mall in America was blown off the face of the earth tomorrow. It wouldn't, wouldn't bother me a bit. But you know, she's she, just going to the mall. I, I've, I've got the power to do that. I could go walk 18 holes, no problem, right? But the, the desire to go and walk through the mall, just like Jimmy's talking about, it's not there. What do I need? I need the grace of God. I, I want to be the husband. I, I want to be supportive. And so I, I want to do things that she enjoys. And I need the desire. I have the power, but not desire. Other times, I have desire and no power. That happens every morning. The alarm clock goes off. I have a desire to get up and meet with God, but my power level is on zilch. I want to lay there in bed. What do I need? I, I need the power to get out of that bed and spend time with God. Grace is desire and power to obey. Now, every time you get in a circumstance, you get squeezed, or every time God convicts you of an issue in your life, you're going to run one of two places. In Galatians 4, we won't turn, but in Galatians 4, it says that Abraham had two sons. And these sons contain an allegory. The one son is a picture of Mount Sinai, and that leads to bondage. So option number one is when you're convicted of sin or when you're squeezed, and it's not Jesus that comes out, here's what we do. We, we run to the law. And we start defending ourselves. I wouldn't have got upset if that kid wouldn't have spilled his milk. We defend ourselves. It's not my fault if you just knew the, the, the family I grew up in. It's not me. It's my husband. It's my wife. You just knew the person I'm married to. I had a lady come to me one night, and she, uh, she was wearing a wedding ring on the wrong finger. She said, I do this because I married the wrong man. <laughs> that was her little protest, right? Okay. So what she was saying was, the problem is not me. The problem is I married the wrong person. And that's, we, we, we start rationalizing. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least we're not doing what so At least our church is better than that church. And we defend, excuse, blame, rationalize. Or like Aiken, we cover up. Now, now those are wrong responses. But many of us, when confronted with our sin, when, when selfishness is squeezed out of us, rather than going to grace, we go and we start defending ourselves. Or, you know, a typical progression is this. We sin, God convicts, we confess, God forgives, and we sin again. And God convicts, and we confess, and God forgives, and we sin again. And God convicts, we confess, God forgives, and we sin again. And God convicts, we confess, God forgives. And after a while, the devil comes along and says, why don't you leave God alone? If you're really serious, what you would do, if you're really serious, you, you would try harder. So we struggle, we strive. Avis used to have a commercial where they, their motto was, we try harder. We become Avis Christians. We're going to try harder. We're going we're to do more. We're going to prove to God that, that we deserve to be forgiven. So, so we're going we're gonna to read our Bible more. We're going to pray more. We're going to go to those long life action services, you know, for a, a whole week. And then the epitome of sacrifice, we'll take our wife to the mall. And then we crawl up into God's lap. We say, now, God, I did this and this and this. Will you forgive me now? 
What a horrible way to live. Listen, here's the greatest discovery you're ever going to make in the Christian life. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. Only one person ever lived the Christian life. Who was that? That was Jesus. He doesn't want you to try. He doesn't want you to work harder. He wants you to die. He wants you to get off the throne and let him sit on the throne of your life. But what we do is we say, no, I'm going to do this. I'll pull myself up on my bootstraps. I can handle this. I'll try harder. No, that's not what he wants. He wants to live his life through you. That's what grace is all about. So rather than running to the law, to Mount Sinai, where it was given, we run to Calvary, where grace was given. So when you get squeezed, or when God convicts you of sin, what do you do? You agree with him. Say, God, you're right. I am proud. God, you're right. I am an angry person. God, God, you're right. That was not Jesus that came out of me. Do you know how tough it is to get people just in humility and brokenness to agree about their life? I was uh, at our camp, we're at our camp. Um, we, we, uh, our ministry has a camp in Michigan. We, people come to in the summer family camps and, and uh, we have a place, we live there on the camp property. And, and my, my youngest son came in a few summers ago and, and he was holding our daughter's arm. It was bleeding and I mean, it was still attached to her body, but I mean, it, he, was, he was holding it up. And, and he said to me, he said, Dad, Anna's arm started bleeding. It was like a miracle, you know, like the miracle of the bleeding tortilla, you know, whatever. Uh, her arm started bleeding. It turns out he'd been swinging a stick and poked her in the arm, but he didn't tell me that. He just said, arm, blood, hmm, right? uh, it just started to happen, right? And, and that's kind of the way we are. Man, my, man, look at all this mess. Me be a part of that? This be my, my problem? Are you kidding? It's the kid's problem. He spilled the milk. I, I don't know how this circumstance got out of hand. And, and rather than acknowledging in humility and brokenness, it, it's like the story of the kid that comes out of the kitchen with the broken cookie jar in the background, a trail of cookie crumbs, chocolate chips all over his face. His mom says, read the cookie jar. He says, hmm, as he sprays her with cookies, right? And we said, that is so childish. But how many times has God come to us and say, you know, the problem is you're stubborn. Not me, God. That's my wife. Your problem is your problem. No, no, that's not me, God. That's somebody else. And just in humility and brokenness to say, God, it is me who stands in the need of prayer. I am the one. Rather than looking at everyone else around me. In humility to come in brokenness and say, God, you're right. I can't change that child. I can't change that situation. God, you're right. And then just to say to him, God, I need you. Hebrews tells us there is grace to help in time of need. But here's the key. If you don't acknowledge you have a need, grace doesn't come. If you think you can do it on your own, God says, you wanna run your own life? You wanna drive? Okay, you're gonna crash. And until you acknowledge, God, I can't do this, I need you, until you acknowledge that, you're never gonna go any farther. That little phrase, write this down, God, I need you. That little phrase, God, I need you. Years ago, when I first heard this, that became the mantra of my life. I, I wrote that little phrase, God, I need you on some three by five cards. I put one on the dashboard, I put one on the mirror, I, I put one uh, in, in, in the bathroom, I put one on my desk, I put one on my Bible. So throughout my day, I would be reminded of that truth. God, I need you. That is how you appropriate the grace of God. You ask, you acknowledge that you need it. 
I was in a meeting where a, a, a man, he was an architect, and he said that he programmed his computer so that every hour on the hour, Ginny would pop up, this little acrostic. God, I need you. So I'll be working on a draft, a design, and I'm, and I'm you know, kind of trying to figure something out, and then it'll pop up. God, I need you. I said, okay, God, you're right. Right now. So that every hour, he, he, he prayed and said, God, I need you. Pull God into your life. What we do is we say, I can handle this. You can't handle this. That's the whole point of the thing. God, I need you. We were in a meeting some time ago where there was a, some in the church that made these little rubber bands and, and he uh, printed on them for us. Just, God, I need you. And, and so I, I try to remind myself of that. Some Tennessee fans, they need one. And brother, you can have one because anybody from Tennessee, uh, no, you're, you're good, you're good. Uh, King College, whatever. So I, I missed it. God, I need you. So do something. Write it on your forehead. Write it on your wife's forehead. Someplace. But remind yourself, as you go through your day, the first thing I do is I wake up in the morning. I try to say, is God, right now, I, I need you. I, I try to make that the mantra of my life. And, and the way to appropriate grace is to acknowledge you have a need. Now, I believe that, that you're here tonight because you want the blessing of God. Let me tell you how to get blessed of God. If you start in Genesis, go all the way through the maps, you'll find this truth page after page. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings conflict. I'm, I'm going to do this chart kind of in reverse. If you want to be, be blessed, you've got to obey. Now, now, go all the way back to the first of the message. What is obedience? Doing what God says, when he says, with the right heart attitude. If you want the blessing of God in your life, do what he says, when he says, with the right attitude. In order to be blessed of God, you have to obey. In order to obey, there are two things you need. You've got to have, first of all, the desire to obey, and then you have to have the power to obey. Okay? So if I want to be blessed, I need to obey. If I want to obey, I have to have desire and power. What is desire and power to obey? What's that a definition of class? What is it? That's grace. So here, I want to be blessed of God. I need to obey. I want to obey. I have to desire and power. I want to desire and power. I have to have grace. So here comes the million dollar question. If all I need in order to be blessed of God is the grace of God, how do I get more grace? Who does God give grace to? James, Proverbs, and Peter all say the same thing. God resists the proud, but he pours his grace into the humble. You want to be blessed of God? Humble yourself. Admit that you have a need. God gives you desire and power to obey, to do what he says, when he says, the right attitude, and then he blesses you. It's all of grace. It's all of him. He gives us the grace so we can be blessed. And he's so committed to our life, he brings about two things. He brings about the conviction of sin and the circumstances of life to humble us you know, we say, oh God, please humble me. Don't pray that prayer. God will not answer something he tells you to do. The Bible says, humble yourself. God's not gonna humble you. He tells you to do that. And the way you humble yourself is to acknowledge that you need him. God, I need you. I need you with this child. I need you in this physical circumstance. And, and sometimes, God, I need you because I realize I'm proud and stubborn and I, you're convicting me of my sin and I agree with you about that. In humility and brokenness, God pours out his grace, desire and power so you can obey, do what he says, when he says, the right attitude, so he can bless you. What a God. Isn't that incredible? I, I, I like this um, illustration, I guess about grace. Let's say that you're, you're um, sitting around your house one evening and uh, you hear a knock at the door. 
And, and you go to the door, open it up, and here stand a couple of guys in, in paramedic uniforms. They've got their satchels and their, their ambulances out front. And they say to you, we're doing some door-to-door -door visitation. Is anyone dying in your house tonight? Has that ever happened to you? No, they don't do that. They don't go looking for dying people. They, they sit back in their office and they wait till the 911 dispatcher says, get over there to, to 14th Street because someone's dying. And they get in their ambulance and they race to the scene of a need. Grace, like an ambulance, races to the scene of a need. That's the picture that, that, that we've had drawn for us tonight. I can imagine up in heaven on Grace Avenue, all these little ambulances waiting for someone down here on earth to cry out and say, God, I need you. Woo! And God pours grace in that life. God, if that baby makes me one more time, God, I'm gonna throw him out the window. Help, God, I need you. Woo! And God pours grace in that life. God, my boss, if you had a brain, you'd take it out and play with it. God, God, I can't handle him anymore. God, I need you. Woo! And God pours grace in that life. And every time you cry out, there's grace to help in time of need. But here's the problem. We're not crying out. We're saying, I can handle this. I can do this on my own. No, you can't. That's the whole point. And God is waiting for us to simply say, God, I can't do this. I need you. And his sanctifying grace gives you desire and power to respond correctly when the child spills the milk, when the boss is an idiot, when, when the circumstances crash in. But we're not crying out. We're not asking. And he's so faithful to us that he creates those circumstances to remind us that we need him. Some of our circumstances are temporary. Some are lifelong. I had a temporary circumstance some time ago. You, you look at our traders out there again and, and uh, say what a great place to live. And, and we do. We live in them eight, nine months out of the year. We were a uh, driving, our, my, my son is a, a pastor in Savannah, used to be in Atlanta, and so we would uh, drive through Atlanta, and anytime we'd drive through Atlanta, we'd stop and, and see him and see our grandkids and so forth, and, and we were passing through one day. We only had one night. We were just there for one night, had to leave. We were supposed to be to church, and, and so I, I drove in there. I got up there about four o'clock, and I got the trailer unhooked, and, and uh, we we're going to go out to eat with the kids, and so, you know, we're dressed up and ready to go, and I'm unhooked, and now, if you think about, about recreational vehicles, um, they, have, they have two holding tanks. One holding tank is dishwater, bath water. It kind of runs out, evaporates in the parking lot, and then the other holding tank you take care of at a sewage disposal station, you know, whatever. And so anyway, so we got everything all unhooked and, and Debbie came to me and said, Steve, the, the holding tank's totally full. I mean, it's all the way up into the toilet. I mean, we, we can't get through the night. We, we can't do this. Oh man, I don't want to hook the trailer up and drive someplace. I'm only going to be here for one night. I just need a little bit of relief. And so I got a black trash bag and, uh, and I, I went out to the side of the trailer and there's this, this tube that comes out of the side, and uh, there was a kind of a sewage clean-out valve close to the um, side of the church over there. I thought, I'll just get enough relief for tonight, right? So I, I wrapped this thing carefully around the black tube, I, I pulled this lever, I, I filled it about a third full, pushed it back in, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I picked that black trash bag up, and I'm carefully walking across the church parking lot, you know, trying to be very careful, got all my nice clothes on, you know, whatever else. I got about halfway across, and I, I guess that it ate the bottom out of the sack because it exploded all over my pants, my shoes, and the parking lot. So here I stand in the middle of last week's lunch, right? And uh, um, at, at this point, you know what I needed right then? Help, I need you, right? Grace, woo! So, so the point is, God says your grace tank is on empty. 
here's a circumstance, what are you gonna do? You gonna get upset and mad because you know the guys didn't dump it before you left? And, and, and are, are you just gonna say, God, I need you. And, and you're gonna have circumstances tonight and tomorrow and the rest of your life, and some of them are God created, so you'll cry out and say, God, I need you right now. He gives us opportunities to do that, but instead of doing that, we resist God, getting mad, upset, mad at the people, mad at the circumstance, and rather than being humbled, we get hurt, and God's trying just to bless us by pouring grace into our life. But we won't acknowledge we need him. Grace races to where the need is. Some of our circumstances are temporary. Some of our circumstances are, are lifelong. I, I have a lifelong circumstance. I have epilepsy. I, I have grand mal seizures. I've had 39 grand mal seizures. That's where every muscle in your body contracts, expands, you bite your tongue, foam with the mouth. It's, it's quite a show. And if God wants to get my attention, all he has to do is let me have an epileptic seizure. And having epilepsy, I'm supposed to live a scheduled life, a routine life, go to bed at a regular time, get up at a regular time, eat regular meals, live a stress-free, pressure-free life. Wherever that is, I, I, I don't know. But uh, for the last 40 years, we rarely have the same schedule, travel all across the country. I, I, I don't eat very well regularly just because I'm not disciplined in that. And, and in 40 years of ministry here, I've never missed a service because of a seizure. I've had seizures. But God's grace is tailor-made for my epilepsy. I wouldn't try my epilepsy. I am more dependent upon God because of epilepsy than I would be if I didn't have it. I've learned things about the ways of God because of my epilepsy. There are people I can minister to that you can't because I have epilepsy and you don't. There's people you can minister to that I can't because of the unique life message God has given you. God's grace is tailor-made for my epilepsy. And God's grace is tailor-made for every circumstance of your life. You just got to call out and acknowledge that you need it. God, I need you. Will that be the mantra of your life? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. I want you just to go to God for a moment right now. And, and just tell him at least what's on your heart about your need for him. The, the fact is, a humble person is the first person to admit his needs. First of all, to, to yourself and say, God, the fact is, I need you. Admit to your mate, to your children, to others. The fact is, we're all walking bags of needs. And, and God gives grace to the humble, but, but he stiff arms our, our pride, stubborn heart that says, I can do this, I can handle this. And the fact is, you can't. I mean, th there are marriages here that are, that are falling apart. I don't know who you are. Some just existing. Some of you have children that you've wept over. It's a business going under. Some have an addiction. Some have no desire for the word of God or prayer. For some of you, there, there's people you, you just can't get along with. It, it could be in your family. Could be in your finances, in your future, in your fears, but there's not a person in this building who is, is not consumed with need. But the question is, we're not admitting it. We need to acknowledge that. Would you tonight go to God and just say, God, the fact is, I need you. I've been trying to change this circumstance and change this child and change, and the fact is, God, I can't do it. 
I, I've been trying in my own energy, my own strength. God stiff arms the proud, but he pours his grace into the humble. And grace, like an ambulance, races to the scene. So right now, just go to the Lord and tell him, God, I need you. I need you in my marriage. Tell him specifically what theory you need him in is. Humble yourself right now as, you, as your head's bowed and eyes closed and tell him you need him right now.